All right, everybody. Uh, my name is Jordan, and it's just good to be back. We only took a week off. It felt like an eternity, so it's good to see you guys. And we're jumping back into Matthew. So if you'd flip open to Matthew 17 with me, we're going to be talking about the the transfiguration today, and uh, along with some other texts. But I want to focus in on this main idea of glory. The transfiguration is the the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. And that term glory sounds pretty familiar to us, but I'm not sure that it resonates with us in the sense of us intuitively knowing what that word means. So when I'm talking about glory today, I want you to think about a couple things. So the first thing I want you to think about is something that is beautiful. Think like radiant, shining like the sun. That's the first component of glory. But there's a second component of glory that that maybe you can think when people say glorify God, what that means is to make something famous. Or if something has glory, it means it has weight, importance, significance. So I am a college football fan. And I've been watching me some college football over the last few days. Hopefully you guys have been as well. And I was thinking about memories that I have with college football, and I thought about this one specific moment when there was just an objectively terrible call, all right? And the, the fans went absolutely insane. Now, I remain just objective and stoic and just observed the situation. Uh, no, I, I, I lost my mind. Uh, and I had this moment as I was freaking out on this official uh, where it was almost like an out-of-body experience where I, like, was watching myself like, whoa, what a... What am I doing? Like, I, I, I booed. Guys, a pastor booing is not a great look. But I, I was lost in the moment, and, and we were just screaming at this image bearer. Guys, officials are people, too. And, and I was watching my friend who was a Christian essentially calling down curses from heaven on this official, just like, like what, is, what is going on? Like, why am I losing it here over 18 to 22-year-olds carrying around a ball? Like, what's going on? Well, the answer is, I, in that moment, wanted glory. Okay, now I know that sounds weird, but, but stick with me here. I, in that moment, wanted to see something that was important happen on a field. I wanted to see a victory happen, and I wanted my name to be attached with it. I wanted to get lost in a story that was greater than me, and it produced these, like, out-of-control emotions when it wasn't going my way. Now, you guys might do that in more intelligent ways than, like, a college kid carrying a football, um, for, but you're doing it. So for you, it might be your career. You want to get caught up in something significant, and you want to live your life for something that matters, and so in your career, you, you grind and you push, and you always want to kind of move up the ladder. For, for you, maybe it's family. You want to have this perfect image of family, or maybe it's Maybe it's hobbies or your lifestyle or something like that, but, but you are looking for something greater than yourself to get lost in, to attach your name to, to provide significance, meaning, and weight to your life. That is the insatiable desire of every human soul. The question isn't whether you're doing that, it's what you're looking for glory in. And God created you like that because he wanted you to get wrapped up into his glory. And so I want to talk today about what it looks like to give up on pursuits of false glory, to stop looking for it in a football field, 
and to find it in the source. And so we're going to look at, like I said, the transfiguration. That will be sort of the landing point for us today. But then from there, we'll bounce around a little bit back into finishing up chapter 16, uh, as well as what happens after the transfiguration. But we'll primarily focus on the transfiguration. Let me read to you a section from this text, Matthew 17, 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And if you're like, what is Peter talking about here? Yeah, he didn't know either. Verse 5 He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Okay, let me unpack just a couple details from this story for you. There is, there's a couple really important Old Testament references that are happening in the story that don't necessarily land with us, but would have been immediately obvious to the original audience. So, so let me kind of explain those just real briefly. The first one is that, so Jesus is, is transfigured in front of the eyes of these disciples. His appearance is transformed, and it's like they can't even fully articulate what happens to him, but we know that he's, he's shining, he's radiant, he's different than he was. And along with him on this mountain is Moses and Elijah. And Moses and Elijah were, were Old Testament people, but that represent these important moments in the, the history of the people of God. Moses represents the law. The commands that God gave his people that were descriptions of what the character of God is like and what the character of his people should be like. And then you have Elijah, who represents the prophets. How God took that, that word and continued to speak it throughout history through his people. And they're standing together there with Jesus, and this voice of God comes down from the cloud, and he doesn't reference Moses and Elijah, he just references Jesus and says, listen to him. And so what's being said in this moment is that Jesus is the true and greater Moses and Elijah. In other words, Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the description of what God is like, and he is the only method by which we can start to become like him. He is the word of God. That's the first reference. Now, the second reference is this cloud. So they're up on this mountain, they're seeing Moses and Elijah, and this cloud comes down around them, and this has happened in the past in the Old Testament, and it was called the glory cloud. And out of the glory cloud, God is speaking, and he's speaking about his son, Jesus. And as Jesus is shining in the middle of the glory cloud, this is what we're supposed to understand, is that not only is Jesus the word of God, but Jesus is the glory of God. He is the exact expression of God, and he is the shining beauty of God. In the past, we've only heard things about God. Now we are experiencing God in the flesh, in person. The word and glory of God has always in the past been abstract. It's been distant, and it's been terrifying. 
People have always been frightened by God, and rightfully so, because they weren't able to come into his presence. But now the word and glory of God is a person, and we can know him. God condescended into humanity so that we, one, could experience his glory, and two, become glorious like him. That is one of the most remarkable truths that we could ever hear is that God became knowable in Jesus Christ. The glory was revealed in a person that we could have relationship with. He reveals his glory and then offers us to become glorious like him. So what does that mean for us? Here's the three places we're going today. The way that we can get into the glory of God is that we've got to give up our own glory. You've got to give up your glory. Two, we've got to learn to see his hidden glory. And then three, we've got to live in the glory. So first one, give up your glory. There's a quote that I read from N.T. Wright on the transfiguration that I wanted to read to you. It's so good. Okay, listen in. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Do you see what he's saying here? If Jesus is, really is who he claims to be and who he revealed himself to be in the transfiguration, then there is no middle ground. (laughs) This, This means your entire life now is put aside in service of this new life that he offers you. It's either that or Jesus was a fake and what he said was nonsense. And what N.T. Wright is saying is that most of us aren't able to cope with either of those two extremes and so we try to live in the middle But what we have to realize when the glory of Jesus is revealed is that your life cannot be the same when you encounter him. In fact, your life has to die so that his new life can be put into yours. That is the devastating disclosure that N.T. Wright is talking about, is that Jesus went from an ultimate divine life, as high as he could possibly get, and he intentionally, systematically went down. He got low. He humbled himself to become a human being. God became human and then spent his life humbly serving people in weakness in a way that other human beings wouldn't do. And then he looked at you and he said, follow me. That is a devastating disclosure for the way that all of us want to live, and it means that you can't live for your own name or your own glory or your own pursuits anymore once you've met him. So two weeks ago, Drake talked about this really important moment in the book of Matthew where Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah, and at that point, everything in the book turns towards Jerusalem. And Jesus reveals himself, and he immediately starts talking about how he's going to suffer and die. And Peter has this really climactic moment where he understands rightly who Jesus is, but he hates how Jesus describes what it means for him to be the disciple. Peter hates that Jesus is going to suffer and die because 
the disciples wanted Jesus to be a conquering king. This was their plan for what Jesus would be, is that he would be a Messiah who would come, would liberate his people, and would rule over Rome. It was a power grab kingdom. And Peter and the disciples wanted to be a part of that power grab. They wanted to sit on the, on the throne along with Jesus. But Jesus says, no, I've, came, I've come as a suffering servant. So look at Matthew 16. Jump back to, to 16, verses 22 and 23. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, rebuking God is always a bad idea, just FYI. Rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What are the things of man that Peter is setting his mind on? What's, what's happening here? Why is Jesus referring to one of his best friends as Satan? Well, here's the offer that Peter is making to Jesus. Jesus, claim glory for yourself without the humility. Claim kingship without suffering and service. And that offer is really familiar because it's the same offer that Satan made to Jesus in the desert at the beginning of Matthew. And so Jesus identifies Satan in Peter's mouth and says, get behind me, Satan. See, Jesus here is describing the type of life that he will live and the type of life that he expects his followers to live, a life of going down and humbling himself. And Peter is saying, I don't want a life of suffering and humility. I want a life of glory. I want you to make your name great so that my name will be great alongside of you. I want you to claim your throne so that I can sit at your right hand. Peter wanted glory for his name which none of you struggle with, right? It's like not, it's not a thing that any of us struggle with. How about when you're at work and you make a mistake, but it feels like the end of the world to you and you're, you're embarrassed and you're frustrated and you're angry and maybe you're defensive. Why? Because you were trying to convince your coworkers that you're amazing And it got revealed that you're a human being with limits who makes mistakes, and you hate that. Or in your life, you've you've got a plan, right? Maybe you're you're a planner, and you've got your future planned, or maybe you've got your day planned, and you've got your to-do list, and then something minor goes wrong, but you freak out. And even little things that don't go according to your plan become all-consuming things where you become frustrated and you can't even function anymore. Why? Because you want to control your life and you want to manipulate it according to your purposes. And you want your life to go the way that you want it to go so that you can demonstrate your control over your own life. Or maybe you're really busy all the time. Because if you're busy, then you're important. Important people are always busy, right? Or maybe you're bitter. You're holding on to something that someone has done to you and you refuse to let it go because don't they know who you are? And I've never done anything like that. I can't imagine hurting someone like that. I can't believe they did that to me. 
you're trying to make something of your name. You think highly of yourself. We think highly of ourselves. But listen to what Jesus says. And, and we miss this sometimes. What Jesus says after this is in direct response to what Peter just said. Peter just said, Jesus, claim glory without suffering. Don't humble yourself, exalt yourself. Jesus says this in direct response, chapter 16, verses 24 through 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not going up, it's going down. It's not elevating yourself and making something of your name. It's giving up your name and your rights and your pursuits for the benefit of other people and for the name of Jesus Christ in your life. You really want glory? You really want greatness in this life? Take the first verse. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. If you want greatness, systematically deny yourself. Crucify your old ways of life, your old passions, your old ambitions, your old desires, and, and, and any semblance of your pride that is left over in any self-reliance. See, this is what Jesus is doing. Okay, imagine that life is a giant game of shoots and ladders. You guys remember shoots and ladders? If you don't, it's fine, I'll explain it to you. It's a very simple premise. You want to go up the ladders, not down the chutes. Chutes are like slides. I don't know why we're calling them chutes. They're slides. But, but here's the goal. You win when you get to the top. So you try to get the ladders that will skip over spaces and get you to the top, and you don't want to hit the chutes so that you slide down. Okay, here is what life is in a nutshell for all of us, is we're trying to find the ladders to get ourselves to the top, and we, more so than we realize, like to kick other people off of the ladders, kind of hope that they hit a chute to go down so that we're the fastest towards the top. But Jesus enters this life, he starts playing chutes and ladders, but instead of climbing the ladders, he jumps on the chutes and just starts sliding down. And then he says, follow me. Don't go up, go down. Don't elevate yourself, lower yourself. Why? Because this world is upside down. And here's what God will do at the end of all things, is he will turn this world right and he'll take that board and he'll flip it upside down. And what you'll realize is that if you spent your entire life trying to climb to the top, you'll find yourself at the bottom of his kingdom. But if you spent your life sliding down after Jesus, you'll find yourself at the top in his kingdom. And here's what's so cool about that is not everyone is able to climb to the top in this life, but anybody can go down. Anybody is able to lower themselves by the grace of Jesus Christ. So follow him. Come down with him. Give up your glory. Now, after you give up your glory, what do you do from there? You've got to see his hidden glory. Okay, so the transfiguration is the unveiling of the glory of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's what we talked about. It's demonstrating the true nature of who he is. 
Through the majority of Jesus' life, he's looked very normal, he's looked very ordinary, and it would have been easy to miss him. But in this moment on the mountain, it's like, it's like there was blackout curtains over his life, and it's like somebody takes those curtains and they throw them open, and all of a sudden, the sun is shining in, and the glory of Jesus is shining down on the earth. And the disciples in this moment are witnessing this like whole other world that they didn't really even know existed. Okay, it's like they stumbled into Narnia. You remember when, when Lucy was in the closet? She, I think she was playing hide-and-seek. She didn't even know that, that Narnia was there. And all of a sudden, she's exploring this new, like, magical world that's in front of her. If you haven't read them, go read them. But uh, hopefully, you, if Narnia is like this magical place, parallel to this world. Okay, Narnia. So, so she, finds, she finds Narnia without even knowing that this whole other world existed. Okay, the disciples are having that moment. They've stumbled into Narnia, this parallel universe that they didn't know about, but that is every bit and even more real than the one that we live in and still exists today. But it's painfully quick, or it's, it's, it's painful how quick that story comes to an end. Like, even as you're reading the transfiguration, it happens so fast. It's like Jesus reveals himself, Moses and Elijah are there, a cloud's talking, disciples get scared, and then boom, it's all over. They, they look up and just everything is gone. And that's the way that life feels a lot. Is that you get this revelation of the glory of Jesus, of how amazing he is, or you have some experience with him, or you have this period in your life where you're really disciplined, and you're spending time with him, and you're seeing the glory, and you're living in it, and then all of a sudden life goes back to feeling really ordinary, and you don't know how to get back in the glory. And the disciples have to come down off of that mountaintop experience, and as soon as they get to the base of the mountain, there's this story of this lack of faith, and there's demon possession, and there's sin, and everything is going wrong again. That revelation of the glory of Jesus quickly becomes hidden, and it doesn't just magically change everything, and Jesus is asking them to remember what they had seen on the mountain, even when that evidence is, isn't directly in front of them. So remember what happens to, to Lucy when she gets back out of Narnia? is she starts trying to tell other people that Narnia exists and they think she's absolutely crazy. And so what does she do? She takes them back to the, to the coat closet, to the wardrobe, and she tries to show them Narnia. But what happens? It's not there anymore. She can't find it. She can't get back in. She can't really show them. And so now she's getting made fun of. And they think she's kind of lost her mind and that goes on long enough that she starts to doubt that it exists herself. And in the Christian life, you have these experiences of the glory of God, and you go back and you try and explain them to people that don't believe, or people who haven't had those experiences, and they just don't know what you're talking about. And you live there long enough, and you, you struggle to find that glorious experience again, and you start to doubt yourself whether it had even happened. But listen to what Jesus says after they walk down on the mountain. He has this conversation with his disciples. This is chapter 17, verse 20, uh, B, the second half of it. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. When the disciples are not able to fully believe who Jesus is, when they're struggling to see the glory, what does Jesus say? He says, believe. 
Because this last stretch for a lot of us, not for all of us, but for a lot of us, has not felt like a top of the mountain experience. It's felt like a bottom of the mountain experience. It hasn't felt like we're seeing a lot of the glory of God. It's felt at best really normal and ordinary and like we're just trying to grind it out and survive. And at worst, uh, maybe you've been doubting your faith. Maybe you're wondering if God has anything to do in this, this current moment. And here's what Jesus is saying to you. Remember the glory that you've seen in me. Remember the thing that first attracted you to me and hold on to it even when it seems like there's no evidence for that thing because my glory, yes, is hidden right now, but it's still there. When you close the blackout curtains, the sun doesn't go away. It's just hard to see it. And so in this life, when you come up against things that are really difficult or when you're just grinding out in the normal life and it feels like it's pointless, here's what you do as a Christian is you believe in the hidden glory even when it's hard for you to see it. You hold on to the hope that is there in Israel even when you're convinced that it's not because you're a Christian and you've seen the glory. Don't forget. And this is what Jesus does. He takes things like mountains that seem impossible to move and he offers to move them for you. In your life, when you come up against things that that are apparent obstacles, those are opportunities for the glory of God. And so you know what, what COVID is? An opportunity for the glory of God. And you know what Jesus is doing in the middle of this moment? He's working behind the scenes for his glory. And you know what we believe as Christians is this this moment won't ultimately be a detriment to the church. It will be to the church's benefit and that Jesus will renew his church and make it stronger and better as a result. And if you hold on to him, what he'll do in your life is he will make you glorious through this really difficult moment. And so as we walk through this, our hope as Christians is not in the fact that the calendar changed. Our hope is not in a vaccine, although we're really thankful for a vaccine, we're pumped about it and all that stuff. Our hope isn't there. Our hope is in the fact that the glory of Jesus exists and that he will use anything for that glory in your life. Keep holding on to him. See hidden glory. Then last, live in the glory. Live in the glory. So I want to go back to the disciples up on the mountain in the transfiguration. I said that glory cloud drops. It's referred to other other places in the Bible as the Shekinah glory. It's the the substance of the the presence of God. Verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Okay. So they're in the glory cloud. It's this epic moment. But the disciples are so freaked out that they fall on their faces and they're closing their eyes. They're missing this moment in front of them. Well, let me give you a little bit of context for why they're so afraid. So another time that the glory cloud, a famous time that this has fallen before, is in Exodus 19, right before God gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments. And the presence, the glory of God is going to fall on this mountain. And God's people spend two days consecrating themselves for this moment. 
cleaning themselves up. But even after cleaning themselves up, not only can they not go up the mountain to be in the glory, but they can't even touch the mountain or they will die. So they literally just stand at the bottom of the mountain and look off into the distance at God's glory falling, and that itself is still terrifying to them. So much so that what they tell Moses is, don't let God speak to us or we will die. They are terrified, and rightfully so, because human beings cannot be in the direct presence of God. They can't be in the glory of God. I heard Tim Keller talk about this idea one time uh, and how this idea is a little bit offensive to us, that if someone gets in the direct presence of God, they could die, that they don't deserve to be there. And that's a little bit offensive. Like, like why would God push us out of his presence? That seems weird. And he talked about this illustration of imagine that uh, you were walking around New York City and then an elephant fell on you. Because apparently in Tim Keller's imagination, there's elephants falling in New York City Imagine an elephant fell on you, what would happen? You would die. And no one would be offended by that. Why? Because the being of the elephant was too great for your being to handle. That's not offensive, that's just a fact of nature. That's just how nature works. And what he was saying is, the being of God is too great for your being to handle. That's just a fact of nature. He's not arbitrarily pushing you out of his presence. We just are not able to stand up to his presence. Now, let's circle back to the transfiguration. No wonder the disciples are terrified and are falling on their faces because they thought they were going to die because no human being can be in the direct presence of God. But what happens to them? Nothing. They're in the presence of God and they don't die. That is amazing. How do we explain that? Verse 8, chapter 17, verse 8. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The reason they could be in the glory is because there was also a mediator there who was filtering out their sins and by his grace making them worthy to be in the glory. And inevitably in your life, if you understand God rightly, you will come to a place where you are terrified to be in his presence and you recognize how undeserving you are to be there. And this is what you need to do. You need to look up at Jesus and see him only. And because of him, you are welcome in to the near presence of God. A place that you and I have no business being, but in Christ have every right to be there in him. I had a friend one time that, that we were praying and he had this kind of image of God almost running towards us as we were praying, almost like an overzealous uncle on Christmas who's like too excited to see you. This image of God like that, and at first I was like, ah, but then I was like, I thought about the, the prodigal son story. And it's like the image of God is him picking up his robe and running, sprinting at you. Guys, God loves being with you. He's not just tolerating it. He loves it when you come into his presence. He's running towards you. And if you are in Christ, if you've, if you've put your trust in him, 
He will never keep you out of his presence. And so if you're not experiencing his presence, if you're unwilling to be there, it's because of you, not him. He's inviting you in. He wants to spend time with you. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 27. It says, one thing I've asked that I might dwell in the house of the Lord, gazing on his beauty. That's what I want my life to be. I just want to live in there. I want to see his beauty. I want to look at his glory. I want to be amazed by it. I want to be welcomed home there because I can come in. Like, how is that possible that I can be with God, but he's inviting me in and he delights in me being there? And I can just pray and be in his presence. I can just worship and enjoy him. And I don't have to be afraid. Are you kidding me? That's incredible. And not only can you be in the glory, but when you get in the glory, you will become glorious. He will transform you. The transfiguration is not only a revelation of who Jesus is, but it's a predictor of what you will become in him is that in Christ, you will be transformed. Starting in this life, he will produce inevitable transformation in your life, and culminating in the next, you will be transformed into the image of Jesus. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I want to read. We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into to words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. You see what he's saying? Looking at something that's glorious is amazing. What's even better is bathing in it, becoming glorious, becoming transformed yourself. And that is what God is after in you. And here's what will happen at the end of all things, is God will have his redeemed humanity in front of him, and he will invite us up the mountain. And God no longer will stand distant and speak things about his character down to us, but he will invite us into his very near presence to experience it together for eternity. And we will walk up the mountain into his presence, and we will live with him forever. And you cannot help becoming glorious when you're in that glory. Moses came off the mountain with his face shining. What do you think will happen to us when we get into heaven? How glorious will we become? If you would have talked to someone several hundred years ago about some of the, the technological advances that we have, they would have thought that you're crazy. Like, imagine explaining a phone to someone seven, that from, like, seven hundred, several hundred years ago. So you're going to carry around this box in your pocket, and you're going to push a button on it, and you're going to start talking, and someone across the country will be able to hear you talk instantaneously. Imagine explaining a plane to someone. So you're going to get in this tube, and you as a human are going to fly around. Guys, flying is insane, like the people on planes that just like close the shutters and don't pay attention when you're taking off. It's like, what do you do? We're flying. We're human beings flying. Okay. You have no ability to comprehend what God will do to you in the future. You cannot even imagine the advance 
that will happen in your life, the glorious being that you will become in Jesus Christ. You don't even have categories for it. And when God talks to you about heaven, you just kind of go, I don't get it, and you push it away because it's so categorically different and better than your current life now that you can't even imagine. But just like there was technically the capabilities for these things back then, they just haven't been discovered yet, there is the capabilities for God to transform you like that now. It just hasn't been discovered yet. But one day, you will wake up into eternity with him, and you will be transformed, and you will be transformed into something glorious for the rest of eternity with him. That is your hope. And so we as Christians, we're hope-filled, we're joyful, we're trusting imperfectly, yes, but we trust him in this moment and in every moment because we have hope in him. I want to finish by reading you uh, Zephaniah 3, which is both a, a prediction of what God can do in us now, but it's also a look ahead to what it'll be like to be with him in the future. This is Zephaniah 3. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let's pray. God, you celebrate over us with singing. I don't understand that, but I'm really thankful for that. Thank you for inviting us into your presence. We don't deserve to be here, uh, but in you, we have all the right to be here, which is amazing. Transform us, God. We want to be different. We want to look like you, Jesus, and we can't wait to be with you, where there won't be any need for a sun because you will just shine. <laughs> we want to we be home with you, but until then, we wait, and we want to learn what it means to live in and enjoy your presence. Teach us this year how to just be with you and enjoy getting to be with you. God, make Psalm 27 true of this church. If there would just be one thing we're asking, to, to just get to be with you and to gaze on your beauty. Transform us in your presence. Thanks for everything you've done for us. We don't deserve it, but we're so grateful for it. We love you. Amen.